This afternoon I preach you the Word of God as it is summarized and confessed by the church in Article 32 of the Belgic Confession. If you'd like to read along, you can find that on page 512 in the Book of Praise. Under the title, The Order and Discipline of the Church. Here the church confesses, we believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the church to establish a certain order to maintain the body of the church, they must at all times watch that they do not deviate from what Christ, our only master, has commanded. Therefore, we we reject all human inventions and laws introduced into the worship of God, which bind and compel the consciences in any way. We accept only what is proper to preserve and promote harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, discipline and excommunication ought to be exercised in agreement with the word of God. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in the time of the Protestant Reformation, when many people were throwing off all rules and restraint the Holy Spirit guided the church back through God's word to principles of government that would maintain the body of Christ in decency, good order, and peace. Although there were major uh, structural changes with the transition from Roman hierarchy to local self-ruling or autonomous churches that were spread out all over, the gospel announced that Christians could continue to live in harmony and unity if they were faithful to the commands of Jesus Christ, their only master. In his grace, the Holy Spirit continues to lead the church in her worship of God on the path that leads us between the extremes of slavery to men and the anarchist rejection of all government and all authority. The church doesn't need to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd, nor does it need to be lunch for the wolves, because the Holy Spirit leads the church into the loving care of their good shepherd, Jesus Christ, through the order that he reveals in the scriptures. The organization of local churches through the office bearers is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I preach to you this gospel under the theme The Holy Spirit leads Christ's church to peace through order. We'll see the purpose, the foundation, and the application of this order. Now it may be hard to value, to appreciate the value of an established order in the churches until you see a situation where there is no established order. Without an established church order to keep them accountable, Church leaders soon become a law unto themselves, and the well-being of local congregations depends on the integrity of its often very charismatic pastors. Without a careful, thought-out, established biblical pattern for describing the ordination and the task and responsibilities of the leaders, local churches soon develop man-made traditions that isolate themselves from faithful churches, from the, from the Catholic Church, and do not, these churches do not remain stable over the years. Churches without an established order 
often forget their own history, often see a growing separation between doctrine and practice, and often mix up priorities by majoring in the minors, by pointing at a rotten banana on a table when the entire house is burning. If false teaching arises, members of such churches have, have as much hope for, for a hearing and for justice as a mouse at a cat conference. When there's no established order in a church, it can be very hard for members to see that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. That to, to pursue spontaneity, pursue this being spontaneous, is really to pursue a disappearing horizon. And it is in His grace that the Spirit has given rules that apply in, in all the churches of the saints. And you notice that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, uh, verse uh, 33 as well. It's in all the churches, this is the rule. And so things can be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. The goal of this order and all that passage we read in 1 Corinthians 14 as well is that the church can be built up in peace. And if you look at the chapter, you see how many times it talks about for the building up of the church, verse 4 and 5 and 12 and 17 and, and 26. And so the Bible makes us understand that the church is not to be compared to a, a big tangle of random children in a playground running in all directions, but of a nicely organized lineup of children waiting to get into school after recess. When you read 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15, as you settled yourself in, in your seat this afternoon and you saw it displayed on the wall as the display text, you will have noticed that the apostle explained that he was writing these things, he was writing that letter so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The word ought, like the word should, is a word that describes what must be done. The Holy Spirit makes it clear that there is a right way and a wrong way to behave in the church. And that is why we confess in Article 32 of the Belgic Confession that it is good and useful for those who govern the church to establish a certain order to maintain the body of the church. We believe that God in his grace has commanded that the true church must be governed according to the spiritual order which our Lord has taught us in his word. And you can see that in article 30 as well, as well as many Bible texts. God's command for a spiritual order in the church of Jesus Christ, it stands right beside Jesus' prayer in John 17 and his desire that all believers may be one in their fellowship with Christ. And then he says as well, this is verses 20 to 24 of John 17, that the church may become perfectly one in the eyes of the world when they look upon the church. Jesus prayed for unity among the believers, among Christians, who were in many different tribes and languages and tongues who lived in many different political, social, and cultural settings, 
who speak different languages, who have different customs, express emotions in different ways, have different tastes, and face different challenges in their faith. Jesus also made this unity possible by gathering and defending and preserving for himself a church that is united by true faith, by having a common faith in Jesus Christ. The end of Galatians chapter 3 explains that Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male and female are all sons of God through faith and are all one in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the spiritual order that is given by the Spirit to the churches is to maintain the body of Christ in this harmony and in this unity with one another in a visible way so that all the world can see that we are one. God wants his people to recognize that they are united to other believers in the world. And the spiritual order of the church does this by calling us all to do the same things in our worship, wherever we may be gathered. That's why you can be sure that any faithful church you visit anywhere in the world will have faithful preaching. The sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper rightly administered and oversight and supervision carried, by, carried out by ordained office bearers. God wants his people to work together in harmony and the order that the Holy Spirit teaches to the churches preserves and promotes this harmony and unity with instructions for worship, instructions for love and fellowship. God wants peace and not confusion. And so the spiritual order of the church is grounded in the commandments of Christ and the instruction of the Holy Spirit through the apostles that is shared by all believers, wherever they may be, in the Holy Scriptures. And we'll see that in our second point, the foundation of this spiritual order. If the purpose of a certain order is to maintain the body of Christ, who is the head of his church, then the source of the instruction concerning how we ought to behave in the household of God must be that very same head, Jesus Christ. The head is the master of its own body. And the head is then also the source of all instruction for the body. This is why we confess that those who govern the church must at all times watch that they do not deviate from, from what Christ, our only master, has commanded. The spiritual order that the Holy Spirit has given in the Word is simply then a list of Christ's commands and their application in the churches that were planted by Christ's appointed apostles. Christ commanded us to worship in spirit and truth, John 4, verse 24. And so those who govern the church must ensure that God's people are worshiping in spirit and in truth. Christ gave the keys to the church. And so those who govern the church must ensure that the gospel is preached faithfully 
and that those who reject God and his son Jesus Christ are disciplined for their sins. Christ described the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of God in in the blessed statements in the Sermon on the Mount. He explained the, the Ten Commandments as they are applied as a rule for Christian life. And so those who govern the church must use his instruction as a guideline for their teaching and exhortations. Jesus commanded the church to celebrate the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper that he instituted. And those who govern must ensure that we continue to celebrate them. Jesus commanded his disciples to care for his sheep. And those who govern must ensure that pastoral work in the church continues. Jesus revealed that the Holy Spirit whom he sent at Pentecost would teach us all things. And so those who govern the church must abide by the teaching he gave to the churches through the apostles' example and letters and ordain men to special offices and give support to one another as churches. The Holy Spirit has made it very clear how we ought to behave in the household of God. And now it is up to us to watch and we confess at all times that we don't deviate. Perhaps the the sermon this afternoon can motivate us to, to to do another review in our homes as we read through the church order and consider the promises that were made compared to the practice. The Holy Spirit leads us through the scriptures so that we may remain obedient only to our Master, Jesus Christ. When we confess that we reject all human inventions and laws introduced into the worship of God, which bind and compel the consciences in any way, you'll see there is a reference to the passage we read in Matthew 15 that makes the meaning of this confession clear. In the time of our Lord Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes gave guidance to the people about all sorts of details in their lives. With the noble intention of helping God's people keep his commandments, an elaborate tradition consisting of many detailed rules and laws was developed and enforced. However, when the Jewish leaders equated godliness with the precise keeping of all those commandments and rules that that they had made, not only was the grace of God denied, but the truth of God in his word was undermined. And that's what Jesus points to in his response when they were criticizing his disciples for not washing their hands according to one of their rules. In the passage we read, our Lord Jesus showed the Jews that they were breaking the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. Jewish tradition explained that any wealth that a person dedicated to God did not have to be shared with their parents. And so they were permitting and even making laws so that people could deprive their parents of the honor that God had commanded. It felt so pious to dedicate money to the Lord. And it may have had very many practical benefits for the church, but in the end it compelled people to disobey God's command. 
Jesus' condemnation of such harmful human inventions and laws was made very clear and succinct when he quoted the prophet Isaiah, and we read that together. And so no person or authority is permitted by God to compel us to do anything against God's commandments. No one can appeal to their conscience to do something that is in contradiction to the command of Christ. It's possible for the conscience of a sinner to be wrong, just as it's possible for an office bearer in authority to be wrong, to be a blind guide. Even though the Holy Spirit may correct our consciences by bringing our desires in line with the will of God, the conscience of a fallen sinner is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. We can only use our conscience as a guide when it is in line with the Holy Scriptures, used correctly and consistently. So we might as well make all our appeals for one thing or another directly from the Scriptures. Submission to the authority that Christ ordained in the church is not based on some feelings we might have in our, in our conscience, but on the recognition that they are saying the same things as Christ the Good Shepherd says. The sin of binding and compelling the consciences that is spoken of, that we, that we confess, is the sin of compelling someone to sin against the word of Christ, either by doing what Christ forbade or not doing what he commanded. Church practice must be shaped by Christ's direct commands. The Holy Spirit's work after Christ's ascension and by conclusions made as good and necessary consequences of biblical principles. And so with our Lord Jesus Christ, even today, we continue to reject any tradition that makes the Word of God void. Even though we recognize that there is a place for traditions and regulations that bring Christ's commands in life into the life and practice of our church in a concrete way. This combination of principle and practical regulation can be seen in the application of the spiritual order in every local church order. We'll see that in our final point, the application of the spiritual order. In His grace, the Lord has revealed a spiritual order that can be used to maintain the body of the church from one generation to another and to preserve and to promote harmony and unity within churches and with other churches all over the world. When we study the scriptures, we will see that the commands of Christ for the life of the church in her worship of God, they fall into four main categories consisting of instruction concerning the offices and corporate worship and ecclesiastical discipline and assemblies. If you look to the very back of the book of praise, you'll see there a, a church order that gives a brief introduction to the salient points of Christ's commands in these four categories. And you can find further information concerning the biblical basis of the sacraments the special offices, 
the prayers of the church and Christian marriage in the tried and tested liturgical forms and prayers. The church order is not a charter of rights and freedoms. It's not a constitution of a legal entity. It's certainly not a legal book of case law containing precedent-setting judgments of previous cases. But the church order is a list of Christ's commands that serve as foundational principles that are, in, are elaborated on to meet the needs of the churches in many different cultural and economic and political settings. The church order is uh, based, is centered around timeless principles that are true and relevant for the Greek Christians in Asia Minor in the first century AD, just as, as they are for members of Canadian Christians, uh, churches in, in Canada today. And if you were to compare the, the church orders through the ages, adopted by the Church of Jesus Christ before the Reformation and, and during the Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries, and you compared them to church orders that of faithful churches all over the world today, you would find that for the most part, they are still the same. They, they, they have the same line, the same principles because they are all based on Christ's commandments and they only differ on the way that Christ's commands are applied. And we can think of some practical examples so we can understand this. Jesus said we are to worship him in spirit in truth. And we know reading scriptures from the book of Acts and beyond that this should involve regular assemblies on the first day of the week where we submit to the apostolic teaching, break bread together, and pray. But Jesus did not say how many times or where we were to have corporate worship. The pastoral decision that you find in our church order to meet twice in regular corporate worship on every Sunday and not three times or four times that finds its starting point then in the direct command of Christ to worship and in the ongoing work through the apostles, or, or, or ongoing teaching through the apostles to worship. That same principle is guided by the Old Testament practice of morning and evening sacrifices on the Sabbath day of rest, and the decision was reached because of its benefits in doctoral training, in increased fellowship, and blessing the church in helping us honor the entire Lord's Day of Rest. Jesus said, worship. We went to scriptures and we saw what we can learn about what this worship looked like. The pastoral element of the, of the church decided what it would look like for us. And so it is a part of our order. We could go through the entire church order this way, but let me provide just one more example. Jesus said, we are to remember him as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup. But he left it up to the local churches to determine exactly how many times they would celebrate the sacrament. And so taking the principle that Jesus commanded us to celebrate often, and assessing the needs of God's people in North America, we have agreed, led by the Spirit and His Word, 
that it's appropriate to celebrate the Lord's Supper at least once every three months. And we see then that there aren't proof texts for every detail that is agreed upon in a local church. But since the Bible reveals that office bearers have the task and authority to take care of the flock of God, sometimes we will be called to abide by rules about things that aren't directly dealt with in the Scriptures. This is not new, nor is it unbiblical. If you look at Acts chapter 15, there was a gathering of the office bearers of a church. We read, the council of church leaders, elders, apostles, and all the congregation, led by the Holy Spirit, they agreed that it should be a rule in all the churches that meat sacrificed to idols should not be eaten. Acts 15 Verses 19 to 21 and 28 to 29. So a council decided that meat sacrificed to idols should not be eaten. But later, when you look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul explained that on the one hand it was an unnecessary rule because idols are nothing. And food cannot defile a person. Look at Matthew 15. But on the other hand, Paul said this rule was absolutely necessary because of the command to love and to peace. 1 Corinthians 8. The rule was in place in the church, in all the churches, because the church is Catholic. And the churches happily curtailed their own freedoms for the sake of the unity of Christ's body. That's the Spirit guiding the church into love and peace through order. And clearly these kinds of concessions for the weak and, and, the, and those who are still learning, they cannot be applied in all cases of preference among believers. But when it comes to preserving and promoting harmony and unity, and to keep all in obedience to God, those who govern the church have exactly this responsibility. Individualistic, entitlement claims, and impatient, uncaring, capitalization on freedoms in Christ are replaced by the Holy Spirit with self-sacrificial love of Christ that truly desires to serve the building up of the church of Christ. Whenever you don't like a practice or a regulation that God's ordained office bearers put into place in a local situation to promote harmony or unity, just think about how your situation compares to the instructions of the Holy Spirit through the letter to the Corinthians concerning their need to abstain from a freedom of eating meat sacrificed to idols. You could just imagine them saying, but I got the Bible here. It says idols aren't even real. Or they could imagine them pointing at a text, the food doesn't defile us. Why are you doing this? And yet there it is in 1 Corinthians 8, giving up freedoms for the sake of the love of Christ's body, the love for your brothers. And sometimes 
in a church life, we're also called to make decisions or regulations about things that just come up because we're following God's commands. You can think here of something like the church budget or worship times and places or decisions about who to call as a minister or the election of of office bearers. Although the council remains ultimately responsible for such decisions, the congregation understands that, that we are the body of Christ, that we are a communion of saints, that we are working together, and that acceptance of such decisions have more to do with love and cooperation for our fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ than they do with submission to counsel. Although Paul commands in Romans 16, verses 17 to 18, that divisive people and schismatics ought to be punished for the harm they cause to the church, the mention of discipline and excommunication in Article 32 is not focused on the local regulations. It's focused on the attitudes of the heart with respect to the commandments of God. And you'll notice also in Matthew 15, the Lord Jesus brings the question to the heart, brings the question to the commandments. The Lord has revealed that peace in Christ's church is maintained and promoted through order, through the order the Holy Spirit gave us. Not just any order, as if systems of democracy or socialism would be just as effective. But he has given us one specific order that Christ has commanded. Beyond these basic principles that Christ has commanded, there is freedom to worship God that is only limited by love for the spiritual needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we reflect on the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives, we praise him for the spiritual order that he has revealed that brings us all in whatever country, in whatever place, in whatever situation, on our knees before our only master, Jesus Christ. God brings us to peace with Christ and to one another through order. May he also guide us as we apply these principles in all Christian worship. Amen.